0: pills to a small town in West Virginia while American families mourn these companies get richer it's crooked pharma it's pocketed politicians doctors writing prescriptions enabling addiction it's the stigma attached to dependency that people judge but don't listen they'll engage from a distance and start treating you different this was brought up because someone tagged us in a tweet that was um basically highlighting what I assume to be chest hairs on a the Mothman statue in Point Pleasant. Uh, and it got me really focusing on the detail of that statue. And we've, like we've mentioned before, and we have in our merchandise store, it does have a dump truck ass, but it's also dump got washboard six pack abs. Um, you know, a chest that really any Olympic athlete could be proud of. A healthy set, and look—I one of your dogs. I don't know which one it is, but he's get he or she is getting real excited about this. I don't know.
1: Yeah, Bosley's pretty pumped.
0: Yeah, and I don't blame him. I mean, look—if I had a body like that, I'd be barking too. And and the so the chest hair, and I think he's got a V, you know, like a V down uh, at the waist area. I'm. It's it's really astounding to me. And I was thinking, like, he would make a great spokesperson for old spice or something like that we need to switch it up a little bit we need to get out of the traditional male human person advertising things like like old spice and i really think that cryptids is the next direction to go in
1: i think that's the only fair thing yeah the the funny thing is like we talk about like you know appalachian and west virginia stereotypes right But then you got Mothman, which is like the, you know, the opposite of, I mean, just ripped out of his damn mind, right? I mean, I don't know what he's doing. Like, he is just, that dude must have lived on planet (laughs) (laughs) That's where he's from. (laughs) Yeah, we did
0: it. We now, we figured it out. (laughs) We've already, we have... We have done more to further the research on this creature than than yeah. John Keel could have possibly imagined.
1: Oh my God! What a wow! What a what a realization!
0: Yeah, in, right there. Instead of the bat the bat <laughs> signal, it's the lunk alarm, and that and you hit that, and, yeah, <laughs> and that's yep. what.
1: gets... Yep. Yeah, that's that's the red light. People are seeing is that damn light that spins when the lunk alarm fuck goes off.
0: Man, we're. I'm not gonna. We're on to something. I Also, pl- Planet Fitness smells like... Which is exactly what people have been saying. <laughs> yeah, I've walked into it a number of times and it smelled like rotten eggs. So that also tracks because that's what... And oftentimes there are men in black that are there who come to collect debts per se and pull you out. Um, That tracks as well. They're also just in the yeah. black membership.
1: Yeah, it turns out... That people, when they said they were running hills, they weren't. They were actually just caught on the elliptical. While Mothman is over, like squatting four hundred pounds. I yeah. love this. Oh, at least I think yeah. that this 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 might be the breakthrough of I would beg beg I would argue what uh the century.
0: I w- yeah I think that's fair because there's you know a lot of stuff has happened in the past hundred years but nothing like this. I he and. What do you think he deadlifts? I think he deadlifts at least the weight of the silver bridge.
1: That's fair. Yeah, I think, well, I think he started the silver bridge, but I'm pretty sure that dude, he could deadlift the new river
0: gorge by now. Hmm. That is true. I mean, yeah, the whole thing, not just the bridge. Also, like, can, we, the whole gorge. can we talk
1: about what's missing from that statue? So you got, you have the ripped abs, right? You have the, right, the perfect, yeah. perfect pecs right you have that little right. v that i have no idea how people get uh
0: yeah i don't i don't know i i think they have to to find a genie or something but yeah
1: <laughs> here's the thing that's missing right so you have all of those the legs are massive the the dump truck ass right mm-hmm. but really there i don't think there was enough detail on the muscular structure of those wings could yeah cause you're, that's a good point. you're telling me right so he literally He's built like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but have wings that would carry Kevin Hart. And that makes no sense to me.
0: It, it, man, yeah, you're right. I I I thought a lot about this. (laughs) Honestly, like, do you think that the... do you think that the Mothman statue was based off the body of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or do you think that Dwayne the Rock Johnson's body was based off yes, of Mothman? I'm, yeah. Okay, so
1: Dwayne the Rock Johnson's dad, allegedly his dad, right, mm. was Rocky Johnson, who's very, who was a very famous professional wrestler, who was stacked, built like Mothman, but I don't know.
0: Yep. Yeah. I, built like a brick shithouse. I don't
1: know the lineage past that something tells me mothman is attached to that lineage
0: yeah i think we need to do an ancestry.com of dwayne the rock johnson and start to to pull back some of the layers of the onion it's a here. bunch
1: of like kick-ass samoans because i that yeah he's like i think he's samoan um so yeah, it, yeah, it's a did. bunch of kick-ass samoans mothman dwayne the rock johnson <laughs> like,
0: yeah, you just see like Dwayne the Rock Johnson's like great uncle is was best friends with Linda Scarberry and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, yeah, or something we, like that. And that's it. That's it. We got to figure out. Well, you can't tell me
1: too. Mothman had to have vacationed, right?
0: So, um. Yeah. Well, he flies. Right. I mean, I feel like he could so do it think, whenever he wanted. Think
1: about this. Like, he could have easily gone and visited that family throughout the time, right? Sure. Rock, you know the he could have flown to the Samoa. The Rock comes along, and you know if I'm Mothman, if I'm let's say I'm Dwayne the Rock Johnson's great grandpa, I'm Mothman, and I'm his great grandpa. Sure. I, I go into hiding because I don't think you can build anything better than Dwayne the Rock. Jo- you've you've done it. You've succeeded. No. You have Epeak. your species
0: is now our species, or at least what our species now wants to be. I completely agree. I think. This is the beginning of our book on Mothman. Um, this will serve as a premise for sure. I do, because there's no... Like, you can't get better than the Brock. And he's got the personality to go with it, too. Now, we don't know about Mothman's personality. I assume it's just fine. He didn't kill anybody. He just holy row, shit. rise out of people. I just thought of something.
1: 2024. When the Rock becomes president. Mm-hmm does mothman get a seat at the table finally is this what mothman has been working towards his entire life
0: i think you're right Uh, well at least he comes back right
1: and then he can live freely he could could finally clear himself he could say look it wasn't me that did all these terrible things. i was trying to save the day that's why i invented the rock
0: (sighs) be a compelling argument I, we're gonna have to see. We're gonna have to see. I think we're gonna have to start that crowdfunding campaign to get the rock to run in twenty twenty four. And take it twenty three we can have selfish Yes And take it twenty three and me. Yeah. And twenty three and me twenty twenty four. That's what the campaign's gonna be called.
1: Yeah, Moth for Life. I love it.
0: Look, we uh we love Dwayne the Rock Johnson, we love Mothman and his chiseled body, and something else, John, that we love is cornbread hemp C B D. a sponsor of this show, sponsoring this series on opioids. I'm a big fan of it. I've used their gummies. I've used their oils. I really like it. It's always full spectrum, and it means as much THC as federal law allows. We like that. It's not going to get you high, but it's going to make you feel good, and it's going to help balance things out, and that's what we like. Yeah, we we like those
1: things. We like that it's flower-only extraction. We like just like Afro mm-hmm. Man, right? We love that we yep, we Afro love man. that we don't have to pick out the seeds and stems, unlike ninety nine percent of other CBD companies.
0: That's right. Trust Afro Man. If there's anybody that knows this type of industry, it's him. Um, and the other cool thing about this, John, look we we choose our sponsors carefully, obviously, and something that we like to do is have ones that represent the local community. Cornbread Hemp is. From Kentucky, and they're Kentucky's first USDA-certified organic CBD product. That means that the Department of Agriculture has certified that they are organically grown. So you can be sure that you are putting something that's good into your body, it's free of pesticides, and it's from Kentucky. What could be better than that?
1: Well, I'll tell you what can be better than that. 30-day guarantee. You don't like it. You send it back. They give you a full refund. So I'm telling you. You can have 29 of these, let's say, CBD gummies. You got one left. You didn't like it. Send it back. You get a full refund. I don't think you're going to send it back though, Chuck.
0: No, I didn't send mine back. And I look, that's, I don't know of any other company that does that. Maybe they do. I don't know. But that tells you that they trust their product and that's important. Something else to really understand about them. We had Jim on the show, the co-founder of Cornbread Hemp. And it's owned by him and, and his family. Uh, it's family owned, crowdfunded. That means that they've raised money from people, not corporations. So it's not some corporate CBD that's just trying to take your money and make a profit. It's somebody that's really invested in this product and really wanting to make it better and wanting to make it good for you. And Jim as the only
1: two-time guest of Appodlatcha. Only two-time guest so Don't far. How much we like him. He loves the people who listen to this podcast so much. I can't believe it. It's the deal of the century. You go on. You make a purchase. At the end, you type in appodlatchia, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A, 25% off your entire order. Yeah. What?
0: What? Let me put that into perspective. That's a quarter. That's like if you get a pizza with eight slices. Two of those slices are for free. Jim is
1: literally telling you right now. He's so confident in this that he can give you a quarter off, and he knows you're coming back, baby. He, he knows coming it.
0: back. He knows you're going to get those gummies, and the gummies are delicious. Trust me, I've had them. They're amazing. Check it out, cornbreadhemp.com. Link in the show notes. Support this show. Support a Kentucky-owned business. End of it. And they have dog CBD. Uh, I wanted to, real quick, before we kind of get into things, though, I want to put out an appeal to support our Patreon um, cause John as you know, we've been working hard at it for over a year and we've got a lot of exclusives on there. We've got a lot of extra content. We're doing a lot more for our supporters and it only takes $5 a month. And, um, it really helps us out. We, As we grow this podcast, we incur more costs when it comes to upgrading equipment, when it comes to... Getting the right platforms to do editing and uploading and all of that stuff. And just the time that it takes to put this together to do the research, to do the editing, the video, the audio, make it sound not terrible. Um, which I think if you go back and listen to episode one and now there is a big difference, I hope. So it's something that we put a lot of time into and we would love and appreciate your support if you haven't been a patreon member already um you can go to patreon.com slash and give as little as five bucks a month and it, it really makes a difference for us i can tell you that
1: yeah I'm, look we uh are the patreon is one of those things that i don't think we thought would be one of the um would be a focus of ours like you know uh as we've grown and as we've We've kept going. I actually have a lot of fun with the exclusives. I I think that it's it's one of the best parts of the episode, to be honest with you. Well, and it's not even part of the episode. You have to be a Patreon member. So uh, look, there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to happen over there too. I think we're going to do more Zoom sessions. Maybe we're going to do more Q&As. We're going to do tons of stuff. Also, I know I'm talking really weirdly and it's because I lost my voice last night. So you know, I'm I'm powering through though. But anyway, Patreon.com slash app Yeah,
0: if you want to hear Big John Power Three and more, there you go. Um yeah. Well I wanted to put that out there just because um we've been we we've really kind of built a community around the Patreon too, and it's been something a little bit of a labor of love for us, and it just helps really, I think, um, make sure that we provide the best quality stuff that we possibly can, including this series on opioids. Which we uh we've been working on pretty hard. Very very true. Hard to Very paint. true. Which speaking of that, we've got a phenomenal guest. We're this is a so last week was the only time they're just gonna hear from us on this because we're not experts by any means, not even close, not even not even in the same universe. But we have experts coming throughout the next four episodes, including today. Um, Eric Eyre, who is an investigative reporter with the Mountain State Spotlight, the uh, watchdog journalism outlet in West Virginia. John, this was this was a big get for us, just because I think Eric is so accomplished in in his reporting on opioids and has really, I think, I think, blew the doors open with just how how much of a role drug disc- drug distributors have played in bringing pills into states. And um, and so he's just a really impressive guy. I wanted to read some of his accolades real quick before we kind of get into the, the discussion about him. He won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in 2017, which is extremely rare for somebody from a local news outlet. At the time, he was with the Charleston Gazette in Charleston, West Virginia. It is extremely rare. Most of the time, it goes to somebody from The Times, from The Washington Post, from those other like LA times as big outlets, but a little old West Virginia hit the map. And so he won the Pulitzer for courageous reporting performed in the face of powerful opposition to expose the flood of opioids flowing into West Virginia counties with the highest overdose rates in the country. Three stories of his were included in his winning work for the Pulitzer, most notably a piece titled 780 million pills, 1,728 deaths, which is a reference to the flood of pills into, um, into small counties in Southern West Virginia All of this, um, he did a lot of reporting on this and wrote a book recently called A Death in Mudlick, which I will link to. It's a great book. I I read it, and it really is a powerful accounting of his reporting, the struggles he went through to get the right information from Attorney General Morrissey, from the drug companies, the distributors, everything. Um, He's also just won a ton of national awards for investigative reporting. He's extremely accomplished, and we're really big fans of his work. Um, John... Your reaction to uh, this interview?
1: Look, I knew it was going to be good. Okay, that was obvious. You know, you look at those credentials, and how can it not be good, right? I mean, especially with our groundbreaking ability to ask hard-hitting questions. Uh, I read that yep. on. I read that on Yelp. I wrote it too, and uh, look, I think this this was one of those ones that you don't. In this interview, you'll see how close journalists get to their stories. Because, you know, Eric, he, you know, he tells you about it in the interview. I mean, this really wasn't his life. You know, what I mean, it, it wasn't something that he was going after in terms of, of journalism. He didn't leave school and say, I'm going to go cover opioids. Right. But it just it, it's like it's like our Patreon. It's become a labor of love for him. And that is what his job is now. I mean, if you look at a lot of his stuff. He he's the guy that they go to now because of because of the mm-hmm. you know all the great journalism that he's done all the research all finding out just crazy stuff that's been going on and he again to have a guy like that in West Virginia is uh, rare I mean you you just if you have somebody like him you usually don't keep them they usually you know they go off and you know, go to the times, you know, whatever they go to, they go to really big, uh, you know, journalistic outlets, but Eric stayed here and I guarantee he could have left, but I I think he just loves what he does now. And he, I mean, he makes a difference in his, in in everything he writes now,
0: which I I think is really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really interesting to kind of hear that he, he kind of stumbled into the, uh, subject of opioids about, like seven or eight years ago and hasn't really stopped reporting on it ever since. And I think as evidence of your point that he's so important in this coverage is something that I think he first maybe mentioned on the show uh, that came out in a, in a court or excuse me, that came out in court recently because there is currently a trial underway with the three major drug distributors in Charleston, West Virginia right now is that uh, the drug distributors had a playbook on him and how to thwart his coverage, how to avoid having stories written by him because they viewed his reporting as such a threat to them. And if the drug distributors view him as a threat, you know that he's doing something right. Yeah,
1: you got to hear this interview because his reaction to that, I mean, and you could tell too, it's not like it's something that he's um that he was expecting. you know what I mean? And come to find out it happened even before he 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 broke, you know ground with you know, his reporting. so, I think it's kind of like a prospect in baseball, right? Like you know that they're gonna be a great hitter one day and they're gonna to get to the league. I think people saw Eric and they thought this guy's this guy's gonna be trouble, even before he was trouble. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And they were uh, they had yeah. some some good eyes on that. The scouts were right. right. <laughs> Damn straight. Well, let's get into it. Let's uh, let's hear from Eric Eyre. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. And um, at the outset, I really appreciate all the work, actually, that you and your colleagues are doing in Mountain State Spotlight. It's uh, a really impressive organization you guys have running there.
2: Thanks. I appreciate it. We're, yeah, we're fortunate to have some really good, young, eager reporters through that Report for America program. Yeah. So, yeah
0: I guess we can you know, jump right into it. Um, Obviously, you've been covering the opioid epidemic for a while now. I'm kind of curious how you got started covering it in West Virginia, and uh, and just how that all came about for you.
2: Yeah, Chuck, I came into it in a kind of a strange or different manner. Uh, I was working down at the Capitol building, uh, the State House, as a basically a state government reporter, legislative reporter, and we got a tip that uh, our new Attorney General Patrick Morrissey uh, had. Uh, an inaugural party and we were kind of surprised that he would have an inaugural party because the governor has an inaugural parties, not usually uh, attorney generals or uh, uh, treasurer or agriculture or whatever. So um, I went down the list of, somebody suggested I take a look at the list of the people that were, were paying for the inaugural. And we went down the list and there was the normal ones like the Western Virginia Coal Association, the Western Virginia Natural Gas Association. And then we came to a name called Cardinal Health. So I, I asked somebody about Cardinal Health. Uh, they had given money to the inaugural, they had given money to his campaign. And it turned out that his predecessor, Darrell McGraw, the former Democrat that edited, was a 20 year incumbent, had filed a lawsuit against Cardinal Health and other uh, drug distributors. So we did a little more digging, and another person that was uh, helping to pay for the inaugural was uh, an organization called Capital Council, which is a lobbying group in Washington, D.C., and it turned out that the Attorney General, Patrick Marcy, his wife, was actually a lobbyist for Cardinal Health, and so she was a lobbyist for Cardinal Health while he was overseeing a lawsuit against Cardinal Health, and he said he had recused himself from the case, but we would find that evidence later that showed that he had not recused or stepped down from the, from the case.
1: Yeah. That that's super interesting. I I didn't know about uh, funny enough. I did not know about McGraw filing a lawsuit pre Morrissey. I didn't, I didn't even think to connect that. Uh, So that's, that's really interesting when you, when you first started this, I know that you said you you transitioned from kind of state house to talk, you know, to kind of covering opioids. And yeah. uh, uh, what was your what was your goal? Uh, I mean, I know that, you, you know, you were just getting into it. Was was there any goal to this research or to this coverage?
2: Initially, it was to uh, see if it was true that uh, Patrick Morrissey had actually recused himself from the case. But then as I got digging deeper into into things, you know, I looked at. Uh, some of the uh, pill mill doctors and and the pill mill pharmacies and all the, uh, you know, I followed the litigation and there were some sort of vague allegations that uh, small towns were being, you know, s- saturated or, or flooded with pills across the state. Uh, so I, I basically spent, John, the next hmm, probably... Uh, three years kind of just getting up to speed on this lawsuit, getting up to speed on, you know, the opiate epidemic, did stories about the rising numbers of opioid overdose deaths in the state uh, and kind of just kind of just dogged that story for the next uh, three or four years. And so here I am eight years later and I'm still do- still doing it because we got the- <laughs> finally got this litigation in federal court in Charleston.
0: So I think like looking towards, uh, some of the more substance of your work and and obviously which formed uh, the the work that won you the Pulitzer, which, by the way, congratulations about that. That's an incredible accomplishment by anyone, but especially, um, I, as I understand it, rare for a, um, a paper that's essentially not the Washington Post or New York Times. So that was incredible work. Um, your, your book, which I, I read and I really enjoyed, um, was called A Death in Mudlick, and it's a reference to the title, which is a reference to the death of a coal miner named Bull Priest who had been addicted to opioids after being prescribed them for an injury. And I'm wondering what stood out to you about his story and why did you choose to reference it in the title of your book? Well, that's the
2: Mudlick, is, is the place uh, where he uh, passed away of an uh, OxyCon narrative. But uh, the reason I, I focused on him was basically because of his sister, Debbie Priest, who's uh, basically an American hero. All this started with, with Debbie Priest, uh, these. 3,000 plus lawsuits. She filed a wrongful death lawsuit way back in 2005. Uh, after she settled, she, uh, you know, started wondering where all these all these pills were coming from, and she actually started uh, tailing some of the delivery drivers that were showing up at the local pharmacies, and she traced one of those uh, plates back to uh, Cardinal Health, and with the help of uh, Jim Cagle, who's a incredible lawyer. Uh, they, they got their heads together and they were the ones that came up with the idea to take it to Dow McGraw to file the lawsuits against Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, and about 12 other smaller regional drug distributors. That, that's
0: interesting. And, and her story really is incredible. And something that stuck out to me, just especially in the beginning of the book, um, is just how striking and blatant the system of moving pills was especially in southern west virginia you had a very intricate system set up of people driving people to marietta and other places to get prescriptions and bring them back and it was it was honestly sound like it was done in the broad daylight a lot of times it, was that shocking to you is or did that come across as normal like what was your reaction when when you had learned all of that
2: I mean, some of the numbers—the uh, number of pills that went to these small towns—as you probably know, the poster child for this is Kermit, West Virginia, which has a population of, I think, less than 400, 380, something like that. And they were shipped over three years, more than 12 million prescription opioids, or, or if you do it over two years, a little bit less than 9 million. But it wasn't—it wasn't just Kermit. Williamson had. Uh, upwards of 23 million pills over five years. Uh, And that's a town of about 3,000. Mount Gay in Logan County, there was another pharmacy there that was actually the highest uh, uh, receiver of opioids and dispenser of opioids in the state. So you had these drive through pharmacies, mostly independent pharmacies, just loaded up with people. Um, The story I tell, I've seen some uh, Jim Cagle gave me some investigative footage shot by a private investigator that he had hired for the case. And they showed just these crowds of people, you know, lined up uh, outside this real tiny pharmacy. And yeah. when I say tiny, it's not its not like the size of a Rite Aid or something. It's the size of like a quarter of a McDonald's or something. And they're just, wow. you know, lined up in cars. You, you can see the footage. There's cars from... Uh, far away as Florida. Uh, you can actually see one delivery truck shows up from uh, a company called Miami Luton, which is no longer in business. It was a regional drug distributor. But, you know, it, it, the one in Kermit, they, I mean, the crowds got so big, as I write in the book, they had to put a, a camper trailer on the property. They sold hot dogs and hamburgers and soda pop because people were getting sick of waiting in the long lines. Um, they, uh, you know, you can see on the video footage people trading pills for cash. Uh, it was just a just an incredible thing. We found out that in this subpoenas later too. They talk about uh, literally, you know, growing you know, growing dispensing opioids over the counter. They couldn't get the cash register shut. There was so much cash because it was pretty much all cash-only business. So it was just you know this incredible like wild west and we found out later that in this tiny town of kermit the, the pharmacist that in the pharmacy he was making upwards of seven million dollars a year uh so big gracious big, big wow and it was Ed, i think it was in the top 10 for most prescription opioids of any facility in the country and that means you know uh, you know big you know new york city la stuff like that it was it was just a totally out of hand that
1: that's incredible i mean we see you know everybody kind of saw the headlines when they came out but when you put it when you break it down like that it's it's even more uh of a worse situation, you know, whenever you think about comparing it to, let's say, New York City, for instance. Um, So one of the themes throughout the book is, you mentioned this a little bit, is the murky relationship between Cardinal Health and Attorney General uh, at that time, but now still Patrick Morrissey. Uh, Could you explain uh, that theme for for people who haven't read the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, so he was in charge of a lawsuit against cardinal health that he inherited from from Daryl McGraw, the Democratic uh, former Attorney General. And he denied that he played any role in the lawsuit or wasn't calling the shots in the lawsuit. But we later would find records that uh, showed that he was meeting privately with cardinal uh, uh, lawyers. Uh, he said he was meeting with them not to talk about the case, but there's a letter, an email that says that you know it's regarding State of West Virginia versus Cardinal Health. Um, later, we had uh, uh, some documents that were leaked to us that we failed to get through Freedom of Information Act and in a court hearing, um, but they were leaked to us that showed that uh, the attorney general was insisting on being at court hearings and. Uh, you know, basically uh, was was calling the shots in the lawsuit and, uh, you know, it mentions Cardinal Health throughout the email that we got, but uh, he was eventually uh, cleared of any wrongdoing, but the the Office of Disciplinary Counsel for the State of West Virginia gave him a stern warning that he should have gotten out of that case uh, much sooner.
0: Yeah. And, I, and I won't go into detail on here, but the way that, that you ended up acquiring the email, um, that, that discussed, I, I think it was his involvement in the, uh, the Cardinal lawsuit or, or had mismatched when he had recused himself was really interesting about, uh, someone that dropped it off at your house after you'd been trying to get it for a FOIA for two years. So I thought it was really fascinating. Um, one thing I'm interested in, you have, I mean, you're, you are essentially, in sort of an adverse, not really an adversarial relationship, but you're going up against sort of the the West Virginia attorney general. Someone has a lot of power. Um, you're doing a lot of important reporting uh, that the big three drug-, drug distributors probably don't like very well. And they have a tremendous amount of power. Um, what like did you probably have some sort of target on your back or something? I mean, could you like did you ever feel threatened? Were you ever where did anybody try to pressure you? What, what was the situation like that?
2: Well, um, remind me to to talk to you about the the court hearing this week, because I'm going to go back a couple, because some new developments came out of the court hearing, uh, the trial this week. But um, uh, Patrick Morrissey threatened to sue me and the newspaper several several times in in retaliation for the articles. He filed an antitrust uh, action, investigative action, against the Gazette-Mail. Um, uh, asking for all all of our employment records, uh, personnel records, and um, budgets, and, and you know our financial records. That that case was eventually uh, dismissed by a judge in Putnam County that was hearing the case. Um, when we got the when we got the leak documents, another thing. Doc, when we got the leak documents, uh, uh, his his. Top deputy lawyer called our lawyer Pat McGinley, who was working free on the case. He's a professor at WVU, and he said that if we uh, if we ran the story in the paper, we would face quote unquote sanctions uh, if, we, if we, they were trying to stop the story from being published. Wow! But of course, there's the famous Pentagon Papers case that you can't uh, preempt a, a story like that. Uh, there's a precedent that you can't stop stories like that. Now, going back to what ha- what I learned last week, uh, which was a total surprise for me, uh, during the opening arguments, and and I've since gotten the documents, the trade group for the drug distribu the opioid distributors, is called HDA or HDMA. And we found out that there's a memo going back to 2015, that they had a strategy called, I'm looking it up right here, the crisis playbook and how it was like, how to deal with the media. And they talked about how they could basically, they list me by name throughout the reports and, uh, you know, what can we do to basically, and you know what the word is, not necessarily for it, but to one my reporting. Wow. And other sides, uh, this is in a, I still haven't done a story on it. I'm not sure how to write a story about myself. Right, yeah. It was very much a surprise to me. I had no idea. And, and so you know that the group, it's called HDA uh, or HDMA. Patrick Morrissey at one time was the top lobbyist for that group, the, the, the trade group that represents the drug distributors on the board of directors of the HDA, or um, all of the uh, exec, all three of the big three have representation on the board of directors. Wow. Of course. But I never, I never you, you, know, you, know, I wasn't, I wasn't followed or anything. I, I was reading Patrick Regan Keith's book about uh, mm-hmm. the uh, Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, and I guess they had a prime investigator in it black SUV outside his house. Wow. Yeah. We in, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you heard about that, but uh, yeah. nothing like that. I, you know, I say to people, that say, you know, were you scared? Well, first of all, I didn't know, I didn't know how, when I got into this at first, it took me a while to figure out how big these companies were. Um, as I write as in the book, um, you know, uh, McKesson is number, the eighth largest company, according to the Fortune 500. Yeah. Um, merit is 10, and, um, which, uh Cardinal Health, I think is like twelve, could they, they kind of shift around from year to year. but these are these are big companies. I mean, you've got you know Walmart at the top of the list. you've got Apple, you've got Exxon, and then all of a sudden you come to this, you know McKesson and Meris, and you're like, who what? And I, you know i didn't I didn't realize at the time they were so big. i I kind of think at some point i had been I have been saying that they really weren't concerned with me because. We weren't the Washington Post or New York Times, and they figured nobody was going to see the stories. Um, I don't know what the, what the governor said the other day. Somebody was like a mosquito on a dinosaur's ass or something like that. I think that's the way they kind of looked at me. But this this new new crisis playbook that came out kind of changed that for me. So they, and this was 2015, and remember the Pulitzer story that won the Pulitzer didn't run until. December 2016, so this was a year before that.
0: Oh, so the, the playbook came out and they were writing that about you in 2015. Yeah, in 2015. Oh, wow. I, I don't...
2: I have to, frankly, I've got to go back and check and see, you know, look at the timing of it. What are, you know, particular articles I was, I was releasing because, um, you know, basically I was just following, following the lawsuit was going on at that time against the distributors, so I was, I was attending court hearings um but nothing nothing huge so i have to go back and look and kind of match up the dates and find out what i was writing that had them so concerned i guess they wanted to keep the you know keep it in the bottle and not let it you know spread wow
1: (laughs) well i mean you know you're doing a good job if uh if you haven't even published the, you know, the article that kinda, that get that you know gets you well, you know, well known nationally, and they're still already yeah. making a playbook of it. It's like seeing a, it's it's like being an offense and trying to play a defense that uh, yeah. you've never actually seen. So that that's incredible.
2: Yeah, the uh, whole initiative, the whole initiative, even though they call this the crisis playbook, I'm looking at it now was called turning the tide in West Virginia. Wow. And and what's bad about that, of course, is they weren't talking about turning the tide and reducing the number of you're yeah, shipping. Right. They were talking about the, they were talking about turning the tide of their their quote unquote image in, yeah. in West Virginia.
1: Wow, that's inc- that's incredible. You uh, you kind of mentioned this uh, a little bit, but there there's currently litigation going on, and uh, you're you're covering a trial right now, if I'm not mistaken yes uh, could you give us a little insight on on what that
2: trial is yeah this is this is called the john the bellwether case or the landmark trial this is the first trial that's gone off against CFA distributors they had one a year or two ago in cleveland that settled before the trial started But this actually started uh this is the first of, you know, more than 2,000, up to possibly 3,000 cases. And in this case, it's the Cabell County and H- City of Huntington in Cabell County versus the big three distributors. And as you probably know, that uh, Huntington and, and Cabell uh, are really uh, even more so than Kerman and Negro County are the epicenter of the opiate epidemic. They, they, they've been through a really tough time and they've made some Real, they made some real progress prior to the pandemic, reducing opioid deaths, uh, opioid or drug overdose deaths. Um, but so it's these, you know, the city and the county squaring off against uh, the big three distributors. And what happens, what happens in this case, now it's a non-jury trial. They call it a bench trial, because it's just a judge, no jury, but depending on what he awards Cavill and Huntington, uh, could have re- or awards, or if they reach, even if they reach a settlement, which we thought we were going to do last week and did not. Um, but uh, what happens here? The, the dollar amount that's awarded, if there is a you know an award, that you know just every every county I think except one, and I'm not sure which one it is in West Virginia is suing these drug distributors. Uh, that will affect the amounts of those in those cases as well, based on population. So it really, you know, what happens at this trial, it is not going to stay here. It's going to have statewide repercussions and possibly national repercussions. Yeah.
0: Well, and especially because, I mean, unlike Purdue Pharma, which was a manufacturer and has declared bankruptcy, lost billions of dollars uh, because of lawsuits. These are distributors. And I mean, I think their main argument, if I recall, is that they're just the middleman. They're not the ones responsible. And they blame it on everybody else so it, it does seem like it could be a really um a striking verdict if, if one does come down um I, i'm kind of curious so to wrap wrap this up um you started covering this uh the opioid crisis, uh, um, Uh, A number of years ago, I'm wondering how has the news coverage of it changed since you started writing about it? Because obviously, the the topic itself has gained a lot of national notoriety. And it's it's a subject of of talk for a lot of people now where it wasn't probably back when you started. So I'm just kind of curious, maybe from your perspective, as some as a journalist, how the news coverage has
2: changed. Well, yeah, I mean, back in 2015, there was a lot of people that were you know, just blaming the quote-unquote addict, and I usually don't like to use that term, substance use, or person with substance use disorder. Uh, there was a lot of blame being put there. Um, I think my coverage in particular uh, opened up that you know, there was more, you know, more than Purdue Pharma was responsible for this. And frankly, it's, you know, I get criticized that I didn't put enough in about doctors, and then I, my mom was like, uh, why aren't you getting, you know blaming the doctor anymore? Which I did, it did a lot of articles about pill doctors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's just, it's just basically this rigged system where you've got crooked doctors, uh, you know, prescribing the drugs, you've got, uh, you know, rogue pharmacists accepting cash and, you know, you know, dispensing, you know, opioids to people from Florida and West Virginia. Um, and you, you've got the, you know, the st- distributors, of course, and you've got the manufacturers, and you've got lobbyists, and you've got politicians that kowtow to the industry. And it's all it's all just, you know, one big rigged system. It's been described by one of the people who, one of the West Virginia state police officers that was, uh, took a deposition, he described it as, as, as a legal drug cartel. And the, one of the lawyers for the distributors, you know, was really taken aback by that, but now, you know, and, and that probably statement was back in June 2016, but now you know, it's pretty much accepted. A lot of people that are covering this, you know, just all different facets say, you know, it really is like a legal drug cartel.
0: Absolutely. I don't think there's any other better word for it than that, for sure. Um, Well, Eric, thank you so much again for joining us. And thank you again just for the important work that you've done and continue to do. I know that um, I speak for all of our listeners when I say that we really appreciate the hard work that you put into all your reporting on this because it really has changed the way that people view the crisis and really opened a lot of people's eyes just to how significant it
2: really is. So really appreciate that well thank you so much to chuck john um you know appreciate the focus you put on appalachia really enjoyed your awards uh I mean, <laughs> that got a lot of you know, a lot of hits uh, a lot of retweets that was great and i think uh, appreciate that you gave uh well i don't know, i guess it's people who tweet or your followers that but, vote but uh the amount of yeah, our, our got fans
1: our fans love love Mountain State Spotlight. So, yeah, I mean, look, all of Appalachia. I, there were people all over all over the region voting for you all. It wasn't just a you know West Virginia. Oh, I, but you, they they love y'all.
2: Okay. Well, now you've set the bar so high, <laughs> uh, but, but we're, we're going to have to deliver.
1: Uh, yep. Exactly. That's why I'm it, doing it. That's why I'm doing it. It's a good it. idea. A... I
2: mean, it's trying to change the dynamic of, you know, keep local news alive, which I know you guys really support. Uh, I don't think long-term newspapers have a lot of viability. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Gazette Mail still does great work, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I think this is going to be the model for the future. Uh, so I'm crossing my fingers and, and hopefully we can produce some more uh, investigative in-depth work in the coming years. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope so.
0: Well, again, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. And uh, we really appreciate talking to you today.
2: Okay. Thanks so much. We'll see thanks. you. Thank you.
0: See you. All right. That was our interview with Eric. I Again, what a, what an asset to the state of West Virginia. What an enemy to the drug distributors and to uh, Attorney General Morrissey. And, I, I just I think that um, the state and really, you know, the country, quite frankly, has benefited from his work. And him and all of his colleagues at Mountain State Spotlight, I'll give them a quick shout out because they're the, basically the dream team of investigative journalists and reporters for the state of West Virginia. And if you're not already following them, if you're not subscribed to them, please do so. They're doing some of the most important work in the state, and uh, and we need to support local journalism. So that's my quick plug to them.
1: Yeah, they're great. They have a lot of, and Eric is just part of that team. I mean, I, I think that's the crazy thing. Like, um, they're kind of like you know, you ever watch Space Jam? Of course you have.
0: Have I ever, of ever watched have. Space Jam? Are you kidding? Well, i,
1: I, was, I'm gonna a, I was gonna make it honestly really joke. insulted. I was gonna make a joke of how much you used to like R. Kelly, but then, <laughs> then I stopped. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny because I actually hated R. Kelly and in sixth grade, my sixth grade graduation, we had to sing yep. World's Greatest and I refused to sing it. Yep. I refused to sing it. I didn't do it because you know what? The was- reason I asked about that is because they kind of are um, the good version
1: of the Monstars. Like they're they're good guys, but they also have great journalistic powers that nobody else has, but they're all on one team. It's insane. So, I mean, it's... It's a it's a team that I will I will root for. Is what I'm trying to say.
0: Even though I did I rooted and, uh, for they, the
1: Monstars in Space Jam. I'm not gonna
0: lie. That's kind of weird. Um, great. Uh, first of all, I I just I'm insulted that you would even suggest I never watched Space Jam. Great movie. Look, My entire room was, I was decorated. I had Space Jam themed party at Skate Country. It's called, look, I'm just trying
1: to. I was trying to tee up as a co-host. I was trying to tee up <laughs> and and
0: let. Let's let you roll. Well, look, you, you you teed me up here because much like Space Jam, uh, the drug companies, the coal companies, the whoever are oftentimes the Michael Jordan of their industry. Uh, so they're they're tough competition to go up against. Yeah. It, it's true. And but anyway,
1: so, they're they're a great group. That's yeah, you know, that's the main point here. And and they really are. And I, I think that there's going to be. Uh, I'm excited to see how far they grow, and I'm really excited to see what it hap- You know what happens to the region because I think we're going to have a lot more journalists like that.
0: Yeah, my hope is that there are more mountain state spotlights that pop up throughout the yeah. country, especially in Appalachia. And I think there are. Oh, yeah. do, it's a nonprofit newsroom, so yeah. not attached Amazing. to any corporate funding or anything yeah. like that. Um, so yeah, but speaking of investigative journalism, the person on this show in charge of investigating bullshit one big john eisner do you have a beef this week
2: i do have a beef this week i do
0: oh man okay all right let it rip then
2: let the let the beef okay. fly
1: this one's put it on the grill like, this one i i think this might be the one that i get the most pissed off at um i i am so sick of people looking at our series on opioids right and thinking that either one <laughs> either one we don't understand the benefits behind having access to these drugs, which we're not morons. We do understand the benefits that are, you know, that these drugs bring. We also understand the human element of things where people are manipulated to get addicted to things so that companies can make more money, CEOs can buy two more houses, and shareholders can continue to gain wealth. So it's one of those things-
0: yeah, We all hate to see them with just the one house.
1: It's, it's really tough sad. on them. And so I'm so sick of hearing that. You- Believe it or not, you can criticize bad people and still say that their product has merit. Look at the MyPillow guy. He is a shit person. But the MyPillow, probably okay. Sold a lot, right? I'm not going to buy it. But
0: still, <laughs> still, my pillow. still, still, uh, John, my name is Mike Liddell, <laughs> and I just want to thank you. We are a sponsor of this podcast. We have the president. <laughs> have you seen that we
1: got a video where he's holding up the phone (laughs) on tv anyway let's get back to it i i'm so sick of that and and um i apologize for for the language it just i got fired up right there anyway the other thing that i'm really sick of too is the fact that like people continue to try and dumb down the idea of addiction they you know they try and say that the reason people get addicted are so many different things but you know I think some of the research that you showed last time that showed that these companies knew what they were doing, it, it wasn't even the fact that like they had a hint of it. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew people would get addicted and they knew people would die. But again, we have a lot of people, across, even across this region, who have been manipulated, brainwashed by these companies to essentially protect them more than they protect their neighbor, which totally blows my mind because the Appalachia I grew up in is not like that. We would much rather protect our neighbors than, than just some random company. But that continues
0: to be a problem yeah. that we see. I was I was a little, I, I don't want to say surprised, but there is a, a lot of people who will go so far as defend the drug companies and complain that what people like what we're doing is harming chronic pain um, patients. Yeah. Because I, I keep seeing that. And and so what which is is interesting because I think like you said the assumption is that like oh if we're if we're criticizing drug companies we just don't want opioids period. And that's not the no. case at all. We understand the the value that they bring and the pain relief that they bring is really important, but It's also the case that these companies, like you said, and like we talked about last week, knew, manipulated it for profit, not because of some altruistic Good Samaritan, a part of their corporate soul that wanted to help people. That was not the reason. And we're not advocating for eliminating opioids. It's just a matter of holding companies accountable and and understanding and assessing the risk and understanding that they're highly addictive and we can't. Like, target your blame at the right entities. Target them at the corporate entities, not the not the people who have become addicted to them and not the people who are trying to shine a light on the corporate greed and profit mechanism. Yeah,
1: the funny thing is, like, if you look at the people who continue to do this most of the time, I'm, you know, just seeing the people that it is are the same people who would argue, like, that, You know, Democrats are are like sheep falling in line. And, you know, they're conservatives who continue to kind of push single digit ideology like they always do, uh, like like they continue to do. But then they fall in line behind these companies and continue to like try and protect them, even though those companies have done jack shit for their community. They, they, I I will 100% give them credit that they were able to establish the ability to, for somebody to have access to pain management 100% i i hand that to them there's two problems though one they're just terrible people running this company these companies they continue to be terrible people they get ter- they continue to literally they look at uh, their computer screen as two things they see number of deaths and they see stacks of cash that's it so as long as the stacks of cash keep coming in and they can at least kind of make excuses, right? Because that's what they do. They say like, well, if they would have used it as prescribed, they'd be all right. But that's not true either because shit, you pointed it out last time. People were using drugs as prescribed and still dying. And these companies know that. And that's what, that's part of the problem. Stop protecting people who literally don't care whether or not you live or die. That may not be what they try to present themselves as, But if you look at the documents in these court hearings, if you look at the, it blows my mind, the email exchanges, the text exchanges that are provided in these court documents, they're disgusting. And they're, they're people who blatantly, I mean, you know, we saw it, we posted this on Twitter, like the pillbillies, right? Like that's what they were, they were referring to people in West Virginia as. Yeah, we will. Uh, that's fine. But you know it's just it's just stuff like that that continues to it blows my mind again the appalachia that i know and i love they're the same people who protected coal miners over coal companies right like they looked at the person rather than the entity and they knew what was the important part and i think now we're starting to lose that because you know we're creating excuses for these companies to continue to kind of manhandle our communities Even though we've seen now for years that their product, although does have benefits, continues to allow for them to manipulate a ton of people, it leads to deaths, it leads to addictions, and it it leads to just worst-case scenarios. People coming in way worse than they ever were before.
0: It's kind of like big oil, you know? We can't deny the benefit of gasoline in our cars, (laughs) but... It's also the case that they've manipulated people. They've lobbied against uh, cleaner energy and, and, and renewable resources so that because it's, it's to their benefit and it's yeah. for profit. Um, just to kind of cap this off because, you know, if there were any doubt in anybody's minds at all that this is a profit motive, um, just wanted to like just toss in a little uh, uh, C-suite salary data for you. John, do you want to take a guess at the uh, CEO salary of McKesson, one of the biggest pharmaceutical distributors well, in the country? I know McKesson
1: donates a lot of money because they donated a lot of money uh, to my opponent and people like him. So I'm going to assume it's really high. I'm
0: going to say seven million. Seven million is an interesting guess, uh, a good one, uh, but not um not really on the mark for CEO Brian S. Tyler from 2019 I would encourage you to double that then add a million he's at 15.4 yeah, I
1: I essentially just tried to think of um uh what mansion's daughter made when she was with Mylan I was trying that's what I was trying to base it off of
0: Yeah that's fair um uh yeah and so I just wanted to just throw that out there like don't don't worry about these people they're fine they've got plenty of money yeah. it's not gonna hurt them it's like saying um, like look, I understand that
1: Walmart has benefits right it has access to a lot of products and people can walk in and buy what they want but I also can tell you that it has damaged communities it's created the need for low socioeconomic jobs that will never lead to any advancement and has killed mom and pop shops it you know and the CEO there his literally his name is McMansion so Uh, Look, it's one of those things, it's going to constantly be, you can, you can say that things have benefits, but you also can easily point out, or should point out, the negative sides of things, especially if they're killing people,
0: point blank. Truth. Uh, For the record, it is (laughs) McMillan. Yeah, we all do we all got issues, but speaking of issues, that's the end of this issue of opioids, part two. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week uh, with a great interview from Dr. Sydney McElroy, not just a podcast fame, but also of fame in her community for working with the community on harm reduction. She's super smart. One of, the, one of the best people we've talked to for this and looking forward to having her next week. Anyway, thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you soon.